This evening I'd like to uh, offer a talk that um, brings together perhaps some of the themes that we've been exploring uh, over the, the week um, and also gives a, a really broad uh, context to our practice. Um, I think it's always nice to keep coming back to this question, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing all the sitting and walking and being silent and being together in this place? You know, what's it really uh, in the service of? What's it for? Um, and so I'd like to do that using a very um, traditional framework that you may well be familiar with, which is the, the framework of the four uh, noble truths. Um, and I also noticed in myself a, a wish to really connect what we're doing here with uh, some very kind of very traditional teachings and to see how these have very immediate and direct uh, relevance to, to what we're doing uh, moment to moment. And uh, so these four truths are suffering its origin, its cessation, and the path. Suffering, its origin, cessation of suffering, and the path. And uh, following uh, Stephen Batchelor, I, I would very much see these not so much as things to be believed, but as tasks. So that puts a... a a very interesting perspective as we begin to listen to these, because sometimes you might hear these things and think, well, these are these four things that I'm supposed to believe. You know, do I, uh, four theories or four propositions or four kind of absolute claims on this is how things are. And then that puts us in a certain mode, is it? Do I believe this? Do I not believe this? Where do I stand on that? What's your evidence? Uh, and that whole kind of mindset comes in. Um, Whereas uh, I really feel that they're ways of reflecting on our experience, you know, tools for thinking about our lives. Uh, and that to me really brings a little bit more energy to it. So, ah, you know, this is a very, very useful and liberating uh, framework uh, with which we can explore our own experience. You know? And so these tasks, you know, suffering is to be understood. The origin uh, of suffering is to be let go of. The cessation is to be realized. And the path is to be cultivated. On a, a similar vein, a, a a phrase I rather love, I've heard from Dharma teachers, is I offer these thoughts for your reflection. Uh, I often come back to this, I really like this. I offer these thoughts for your reflection. Uh, so that's the, the spirit in which I'm giving this talk uh, this evening. Uh, firstly, the sense of, of offering. And uh, so to the best of my ability, these, uh, this talk is a, is a gift. A sense of, of generosity, of offering something that, with the, uh, the wish that it's useful. And uh, the whole 45 minutes doesn't have to be useful for you. 
<laughs> that would be setting the bar pretty high, wouldn't it? <laughs> but it's quite nice to have that feeling as you listen through. Yeah, ah, that bit, that really resonates. And I'm not quite sure about that bit. Ah, yeah, that's something I'm going to think about more. So this sense of, a, of an offering. Uh, but also this thing of, for your reflection, that the autonomy that that suggests, I think, is very important. It's not, I offer these conclusions for you to write down. You know, I offer you these endpoints for you to say, oh, that's great, I've got that. Um, but actually to, to reflect, to continue to come back to. Um, one interpretation of the, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, Paul was talking about the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, and one interpretation of that, that there are others, is that actually we begin to use the teachings more and more as lenses through our pheno- uh, to see uh, our experience. Uh, so we see phenomena in the eyes of these teachings. So in other words, we're really taking it more and more to heart. It's not just a theory out there, but it becomes how we uh, see, reflect, uh, and understand. So with that said, if you're very familiar with the Four Noble Truths, uh, then this is simply another chance to continue to reflect. What does it mean? What's that about? What can we understand from that? These talks aren't just information. (laughs) It's not like some information for you on something called the Four Noble Truths, but they're an invitation to participate in this process of reflection. So, the, uh, the first of these truths is, uh, I use the word there, suffering. You may be familiar with the Pali word dukkha. You can also call unsatisfactoriness, uh, a sense of not quite being at ease. Uh, and so encompasses a whole wide range of things. And there's a delightful simplicity in how this is expressed in the, in the sutta, in the scriptures. So it said that birth, old age, sickness, and death are dukkha, have this quality of dukkha. And so it's interesting to think, uh, well, what does that mean? Um, in a very, very down-to-earth way, it says there's something written into being a human being that is tough and will always be tough. Uh, and is tough for all of us. In other words, right at the beginning of a human life, and that process of, uh, of being born is, well, you know, we're thrust out of a very comfortable environment where our needs are met, and then wow, suddenly out in this big wide world. Uh, we are subject to sickness, all of us. Again, we have these bodies, and it doesn't matter how much meditation you do, that's not going to change. You know, you can't suddenly, it, this body, it's just its nature, that it's prone to, to sickness. We can't uh, ultimately do anything about that. Obviously, we've got wonderful medicines that can help us and manage that. And, but that ultimate... Existential fact remains, we're, we're subject, to, the body's subject to sickness. To getting old, 
It's aging. And to to death. Um, many of you have seen the the skeleton in in the walking room, and I think for some people a bit of a a shock to come and, and to see that. But this this reflection is also you know a reflection on this uh, very basic fact of our existence. Uh, you know that we will get old, we will die. So first noble truth in some senses is is referring to this you know these basic sense of of what it is to be a human being the challenges that life throws at us just in the nature of this existence it then moves on to some other things so again i, I rather like the simplicity of this this sense of getting what one doesn't want and not getting uh, what one does want Got that right. It's <laughs> kind of a little bit of a tongue twister, that. But it's just like really getting down to the basics. I mean, just think about it today. Have you had a moment today where you didn't get what you want? I mean, almost certainly. <laughs> you know, could have been anything. You wanted the bell to ring a bit earlier. You wanted the uh, food to be a bit different. You wanted your roommate to behave differently. You wanted. To room to be a little bit warmer. You wanted Kirsten or Paul to be giving the talk, and now it's me. Uh, you know, it could be endless stuff. You know, but it's just that if you think about it, almost every day it's got this quality. So okay, sometimes I just don't get what I want. It's like built in, built into life, and we can manage that and try and. Um, make conditions as nice as we possibly can, but ultimately that doesn't, that doesn't go away. Hmm. I don't know, <laughs> I often imagine this sort of sense of, of being in a, in a really beautiful hotel somewhere and being incredibly rich, you know, maybe in the Bahamas or something like that. And it's just a beautiful situation. You could imagine it's almost everything you wanted. And you're just lying on your sunbed and then you order this cocktail and it's going to be so nice, you know. But they're late with this cocktail. <laughs> Don't they know who I am? You know, where is it? Yeah. And so, you know, even for the, for the rich, the famous, the people who have all the advantages in life, you know, there can be that sense that people still face with this getting what they don't want, not getting what they want. And the dukkha also can include a, a subtle sense of not being at ease, a subtle sense of not being at home, a sense that things aren't quite complete. Um, do you ever get this sense that things will be okay just round the corner? <laughs> you know, just round the corner. Just when I've got this out, I've got, I've got quite a lot on at the moment, I've got to get this done, and I've sought that out, and then there's that happening. But just round the corner, <laughs> it'll be great. And I don't know if you can feel this in your life, how that can feel... Um, quite endless, that the just round the corner 
very often turns out to be quite elusive. So the corner comes, but now suddenly, ah, that's not quite complete. And sometimes we may feel that our life is like a collection of projects. You know, you've got their home, family, work, friends, finances, health. And that therefore life is a project of getting all of this working all at once. <laughs> It's funny even to name it like that. You think, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> but I mean, imagine if, if you've done that. You sort of, it's like spinning all these plates, isn't it? And I work, ah, great, finally got this job and that's going okay. You know, got rid of that stressful one and now this one's quite nice. And then, ah, oh, it's not, not too bad at home. And then, ah, oh, my back's gone. <laughs> you know, and the health, that's there. Or it's something to do with finance. There's something around. I mean, maybe there are these moments, I don't know if you've had them in your life, where suddenly all the plates are spinning at once and it all feels really, ah, I've arrived. But how long does that last? <laughs> you know, one begins to wobble, doesn't it? Because it's in the nature of these things. All of these things that we might feel like we depend upon, oh, that's fixed, that's great, that's in place, that's sorted. They're all rather fragile. And so, one definition of dukkha is seeing that my life will only be okay when I can eternally get all the plates spinning at once and they will never wobble. It's like, and as I say, to name it, it's like, of course that's not going to happen, but it's like we could act as if, ah, that's the completion, and that's why it always feels just around the corner. It's interesting, where do we look for this sense of completion? And we, we can do it in so many different things. I heard a, or read a story once of a, of a man looking for the perfect woman, looking for the perfect partner. It's a rather nice archetypal story. You may or may not have, have heard this, but he's, he's looking for the perfect wife and he meets one person and, you know, she's wonderful and she's very beautiful and she's very kind and she comes from a, um, you know, a good family. And, uh, but he feels perhaps she's not quite so... Intelligent, he's, you know, he's not intelligent enough for him. So he meets somebody else who's very, uh, you know, intelligent and comes from a good family, but uh, you know, perhaps sometimes is prone to a bad temper, and the kindness isn't there. So he keeps going around looking for the person who's got all of these characteristics. And he's talking to his friend about this. And he says, how, "How did you get on? Did you ever find this person?" He says, "Yes, it was fantastic. You know, I found this woman, and she was so attractive, and she was, you know, everything was sort of finances, lovely family, intelligent, everything I'd ever dreamed of. He says, well, you must be so happy. You know, what a wonderful marriage. And he says, ah, oh, there was one problem. He said, what was that? She was looking for the perfect man. But it can feel like that, and certainly romantic relationships are one area. And uh, as we know, it's a, it's a real myth in our culture, isn't it? The myth of the sort of finding completion through the romantic partner that can be around for us. There's a lot of stuff of doing that. Um, and uh, I'm certain, you know, just to be clear, I'm not sort of anti uh, relationships in any way. There's a wonderful richness in in, in uh, relationships, but it's so interesting, that moment of, you know, you find somebody who thinks they're so wonderful, and, ah, oh, really good, and the honeymoon, and then, ah, oh. <laughs> they leave their socks on the floor, and, 
oh, they have moods as well. And sometimes they don't want to do what I want to do. And, oh. and that moment is very interesting, actually. I'm not a relationship counsellor, by the way. I don't want to start wandering into areas that I'm not qualified to talk about. But, but that, that point... Um, is interesting because it, it's the point where sometimes if we can just think, oh well, this is we still haven't found the right one, <laughs> so then we just go spinning around. And it may be, you know, just to be clear again, it may be that very wisely we realise this isn't isn't the, the the right relationship. Of course, that can be a very wise decision, but sometimes that place is also a, a doorway into perhaps something a little bit more real. You know. Yeah, so when our initial projections go, oh, we can meet, meet the person in all their joys and sorrows and loveliness and foibles and start to see yeah, what can be met at that point. Yeah. But again, we could just do this with so many things, couldn't we? We might imagine that um, having children will give us a sense of completion. And again, there may be wonderful joys associated with that. And then the terrible twos and the, you know, all of the, the, the sorrows around that too. Or it might be again through work, you know, the, the promotion that we'd always dreamed of. And then the, uh, our colleagues look at us slightly differently. Who does she think she is now? I mean, sometimes it can be like that, can't you? It's something that you've looked forward to. It, it has an impact in other areas. And maybe the support you got from being one of the team, now, now maybe you feel rather lonely in this position of responsibility. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful to finally own a home? Hmm. Who's going to sort out the roof? <laughs> Am I going to be able to pay the mortgage? Why are the neighbours so noisy? And you might think at this time, God, this guy's on a real downer. <laughs> and uh, it's quite important to, to emphasize that this isn't um, in any shape or form uh, a pessimistic teaching. This isn't saying, oh, isn't it basically just, might as well just give up. I'm not going <laughs> to get the perfect relationship, perfect home, perfect everything. Oh, just forget it. The, the key to seeing why this is not pessimistic is because once we see this pattern of over-investment in these particular things, which leads to an inevitable disappointment, once we see that as a pattern, we don't need to be so drawn into it. And then we can increasingly discover a more basic sense of joy and ease that isn't pinned to those things. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I just wanted to throw that in at this point. Hmm. So. so that's the, the first of these truths, the truth of suffering or dukkha. Uh, and the second is the, the origin the origin of dukkha, the origin of suffering. Um, before I talk more about that, I wanted to mention again just something about a framework of how we hear this. 
And that's this. It's really helpful to understand these truths as talking about a moment-to-moment process rather than a self progressing over time. Okay? I'll say a little bit more about that, but it's really helpful. As a moment-to-moment process rather than a self progressing over time. So the self-progressing over time model would be a little bit like this. I'm here these four noble truths, and this is me at the moment. I'm in the first truth. I'm a suffering being. I'm a being that's lost and confused and keeps doing all of this thing. Um, and the reason I'm suffering is because I've got this origin, which is uh, tanha or craving. I'll talk more about. So then a certain logical mind comes in. Oh, well, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> something wrong with me that I've got this kind of deficiency called craving. Oh, but it's okay, because these people at Gaia House and elsewhere, they've given me the solution. And so what I need to do is keep coming to Gaia House and sit on the cushion. And if I do it long enough, I'll chip away at this deficiency and eradicate this craving. And then somewhere, over the rainbow, <laughs> uh, this cessation of suffering that they keep telling me about, I, that'll, that better turn up. How long is that going to be? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Ten lifetimes. But that, that, I think, is another kind of model of this that makes the truth begin to see, or this teaching begin to see a little bit pessimistic. It's like, God, you're telling us we're all miserable now. And you know, maybe, just maybe, with a lifetime of spiritual hard work, we might just about get somewhere. <sighs> so rather than seeing it in that way, it's interesting to see moment to moment how suffering arises and ceases. And if you think about your own life, it could be your own retreat, your own life in general, it's not like there's a continuous level, aren't there? There are those times when we're really in it and everything feels far too much and I'm overwhelmed and I've got too much going on and my head's spinning and I'm just stuck. But even in really stressed times, we're not like that every moment. You know, that... Uh, constricting that contraction is something that comes and goes. Yeah? So there's those moments of stillness, moments of where, where this calls. Uh, it's not something that lies way off in the future. It's something we can see and notice and tune into uh, here and now, moment to moment. So the... The second of these truths, the um, tanha. Uh, again, let's think about a, a translation of that. Um, one quite common one is craving. Another translation is thirst. Yeah. Um, perhaps a less helpful one is desire. Uh, desire, I think, is an older translation. So you may have come across those kind of ideas that sort of uh, Buddhism says desire is the cause of suffering or something. It makes it sound a little bit like a theory. And, uh, and also, again, a bit impossible. How, how am I going to get rid of desires, not have any desires? Um, and even somebody said to me this week, of course, you, have to, you had to have desire to come on retreat. You might be looking at the website, think, oh, I've booked that New Year retreat, that looks good. And then you think, oh, no, that's a desire. <laughs> it's the cause of suffering, I won't do that, you know. But again, how could you function without, without desire in that uh, sense? 
So it's helpful to, to really feel what's being spoken of here. Um, for me, a very helpful model is the model of, of addictions. And that kind of unquenchable thirst that goes round and round in circles. I think it's a rather uh, helpful way of seeing it. So it's like something that, that's saying, oh, I need this, I need this, I need this. And then we get the thing that we think we need, but it just re-triggers the wanting. Uh, so if we think of uh, somebody who's very dependent on alcohol, you know, there's a feeling that every cell in the body is screaming, I need a drink, I want a drink. What really will make me feel okay is a drink. And, of course, temporarily, the drink is, ah, oh, okay. But then the very tendency, oh, what I need is a drink, as a drink, is reinforced with that. And so this tanha may be uh, saying, really, that this, this pattern is around for all of us, you know, in, in those ways. It's like that, ah, oh, what I need is, it's, it's circular. I mentioned this word the other day, it's like, ah. Oh, this is the person that's going to be so wonderful. And, and, ah, it didn't quite work out. Oh, so it must be this one. You know, but it, it's that feeling of going round and round and round in circles. Um, traditionally, it's spoken of uh, there are three kinds of craving, three kinds of tanha that we can notice. The first is called um, uh, karma tanha. My, um, just as a bit of an aside, please don't pay too much attention to my pronunciations. They're not uh, fantastic. But karma, in this sense, is uh, K-A-M-A, which means something like sensuality. It's very different than when there's an R there, which is karma, uh, which means more like actions. Just a little Pali uh, aside. <laughs> um, but this, so this sense of of, of uh, thirst for sensuality, for sense pleasures. When I was thinking about this uh, a little earlier today, I was thinking it, there's a bit of a challenge to talk about this with ma without making it sound too simplistic. Because there is a kind of simplistic version of it. It's like, you know, I'm here and then I'm dreaming of an ice cream and I think, oh, an ice cream would be really nice. Uh, and that's what I want, and that'll, that'll make it fine. Uh, and I think that is a, a sort of helpful model for what this wants, when I think, ah, that's my well-being. If I had some ice cream, everything would be wonderful, and the world without ice cream is a world of lack, deprivation, <laughs> sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, as we say. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. And, and I think it's helpful, but I th also, I had a bit of a sense that also, that can feel almost too easy, you know, it's like, because probably none of us really think ice cream is the solution <laughs> to our problems. Yeah, so I was just, I was just trying to think that, that but that there are some kind of subtler levels of this, really. Um, interesting experiment would be to sometimes, you know, very directly with this, just to eat some very simple food. And what would that be like, to have a week of just eating food with no particular herbs, spices, no salt, just maybe plain boiled potatoes, some plain rice, boiled vegetables? Just be interesting. It's nice to have an experiment, isn't it? Because again, it can, can really just show up this karma tanha. You know, how much investment is there into 
nice sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches to make me feel okay. There's nothing here that's a condemnation of sense pleasure. It's just looking at the relationship to it because when we're really thinking that's what makes everything okay, we're we're like a, a hostage to it. You know. And as uh, Kirsten was mentioning, I think, in our, in our particular society, the consumerism of our society uh, is an additional challenge here. Because karma tanha is being continually and very de- deliberately stimulated. Um, just uh, before Christmas when I came here, I was in, uh, in Boots, you know, the chemist. And I don't know quite why I did it, but I was in there sort of noticing these things. And I just had a little experiment, again, Quite a nice, fun thing to do in a supermarket next time you're there or something in the shop. But I just closed my eyes slightly. And in closing my eyes, I wasn't uh, focusing so much. And I just saw these products. But because my eyes were a bit closed and not focused, I didn't really notice all the brand names and even what they were. But I just noticed what an incredible array of colour it was. The pinks and the golds and the whites and the light blues and the... And just how enticing it all was. <laughs> it's quite, quite nice. To, again, this is right, real you know, practice in the, in the marketplace. Yeah. Sometimes I've been really astounded when you, you, you can see when you, you leave this uh, retreat at the weekend. You, when we're really sensitive, it can feel so overwhelming. Again, it's a nice practice just to walk around a big shop, you know, with the intention perhaps not not to buy anything, but just notice how we're pulled three for two, buy one, get one, three, free. You know, it's like, (sighs) one of my favourite signs I saw once was in Sainsbury's, and it was a big sign up there. It said, last chance to buy. <laughs> I wish I'd taken a photograph of it because I remember thinking, I bet that's not true. <laughs> I'll, bet, I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet they'll still be here tomorrow. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, and obviously it referred to that particular product, but, but how these things are having that, oh, it's my last chance. Oh, what happens then? <laughs> you know. As well as this uh, karma tanha, the teachings also speak of bhavatana, which means literally the craving to be born and craving to become. And uh, in my understanding, well, it's certainly one interpretation of this, I, I notice this, this tendency to, to wish to be somebody special or the wish to create and defend an identity that feels okay. I think this is fascinating. So, in other words, this rather than looking for a sense of completion in sense pleasures, looking for it in an identity. Can I be somebody who's finally got it together? You know, there's a lot of energy that can go into uh, wanting to be a success. You know, and finally, I here, you know, created and defended this image. Um, and this can come up very much, interestingly, in spiritual teachings. Um, 
And uh, I, I mean, I certainly notice it can come up as I've taken on this role of teaching. Of course, it comes up in this too. Uh, so I'll talk a little around this, but just because it, it's kind of what I know, so it's quite helpful to see what I know. But I can notice it can, it, it can arise, this bhavatana. It's like, oh, I've got to be. Now I've got to be the Dharma teacher. <laughs> Invest in that. And so one little area where I've noticed this is uh, uh, our friend uh, and, and colleague, uh, Rob, uh, many of you may know, has um, written a, a rather wonderful uh, book, you know, The Seeing That Frees. And uh, among my sort of many responses to this, there can be, well, maybe I need to write a book. <laughs> you know, Rob's written a book. When, you know, I've been doing this uh, however long it is now, seven, eight years. Time to write a book. And it's like the, the feeling of, but it, interesting to notice where it's coming from. It can come from the feeling of, I want to be the kind of person who's written a book. Because that's like, ah, oh, that's the next thing. But this is this Bhavatanha, isn't it? It's like if I can sort of create a sense of being, ah, and trying to invest in that, I'm going to make myself feel okay, because I, I've done that. And... Uh, I remember hearing Martine Batchelor, who you may also know, who has written many books. And she, she's also spoken about, about this thing. And she said that, you know, she's got this book and she was obviously working on it a long time and writing it, editing it, sending it to the publishers. Whole massive long process. And then, you know, really looking forward to it. And then, oh, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? And finally this book comes out and she gets her copy through the door and she sort of opens it and looks at it. And, oh, it's great, my book's out. You know, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Oh, well, that's nice. Puts it on the shelf. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> you know. But it's that same thing. It's like, well, what, did, what, did, what did we expect? You know, oh, I've written a book. I've arrived. You know. <laughs> what happens then? Critics dig in. <laughs> I've got to deal with all of that. Dukkha around other people didn't like it. And, oh. and maybe a few years, oh, no, I've better write another one now. I haven't written one for you know. And of course, this isn't saying not to write books. And if you think, if you see maybe in five years, ten, ten years' time, I've written a book, you think, ah, oh, he did. Right? <laughs> but but where, where I've got to with it is, is just, it just feels a much happier place. Is, you know, if I've got something to say, yeah, lovely motivation. But the motivation of wanting to be somebody who has written a book is, <laughs> is just bhavatana, and it's just a place of struggle. Yeah? Just a place of... Wanting to build too much uh, out of something. A book that is wonderful. <laughs> Somebody who did read a book, wrote a, a book, um, Trungpa Rinpoche, an absolute classic of cutting through spiritual materialism. It's a wonderful uh, book in the early 70s. But he talks about the way that in spiritual circles, all of these patterns I'm talking about can just repeat themselves. So we try to adopt a more spiritual persona, or we start collecting loads and loads of initiations, or you know, pumping ourselves up. Look at the new, new, improved spiritual me. You know, but it's still this. The underlying assumptions can be coming from this bhavatana. You know, I need to be a kind of person who's got this identity that means I'm fixed and okay. The third type of uh, craving 
is called vibhava tanha, which means literally again the craving not to be. Um, and I understand this really as one of the ways where we feel we've basically just had enough. So I've, I've been trying to make myself feel okay by eating nice food, getting nice sights, nice smells and things, and it got a bit exhausting. Then I've tried this whole kind of self-improvement, success project, being somebody's good enough. Get, uh, and then those times when you just want the whole thing to go away. You know? So it's like that moment when you just want to go home and put the duvet over your head and just, just blank out, you know, craving not to be. Uh, one manifestation of this is, is if we, again, to go back to alcohol, I think if we, if we really want to drink to the extent that we're really out of it, to oblivion, you know. Uh, sometimes I think people, uh, in my, my view, not quite accurately, call a lot of binge drinking a kind of hedonism, like it's to do with pleasure, but I don't think it is to do, if you really, to that extent, not, not about pleasure, it's about being out of it, you know, and not being here. This could be the vibhava tanha, the wanting to, to get rid. And two, there's a spiritual version of that too. You know, we're interpreting our life as uh, our spiritual practice as a process of eradicating all the unacceptable parts of ourselves. You know, sit here and get rid of my anger and jealousy and defeat the devil and, you know, all those bits. This leads me to, again, a a reflection that's been very, very, very important for my own practice, which is this shift between understanding this, uh, I think from possibly even an over-literal point of view, which was that if this is the problem, therefore what I need to do is somehow get rid of these tendencies. Again, it's back to the view I mentioned earlier. So here I am, I'm an inadequate person or I'm a person that's not quite together because I've got this tendency to crave sense pleasures or crave success or want to get out of it. So I somehow need to get rid of those tendencies. And really helpful shift in my practice has been the sense that actually it's not really around getting rid of these things at all. It's around being aware, noticing them, noticing as they arise and pass. And as we notice them as they arise and pass, we don't need to be caught within them. It's a really interesting shift. You can think around that this week. You know, if you've had moments when your mind is looping, I mentioned in the, the talk earlier, it's easy to think, ah, this is a failure. I'm a person whose mind loops. Okay. Good, and then maybe the next day you're feeling more calm and the mind looping stopped. And you think, progress. The mind looping has stopped. I have evolved. (laughs) You know. (laughs) And then, of course, it's easy just to project that. Well, if I've evolved now, that day, we just project it in time over the years and decades ahead. You know, I will be, if I keep doing this long enough, these patterns will. you know, I'll completely eradicate them. But very interesting to shift that perspective to sort of, to, to think actually this very liberating sense of when we see their ephemerality, 
it actually doesn't particularly matter whether they arise or not. So we're not so, in, in a way that's another investment, isn't it? It's like saying, oh, I'm doing well. I'm an acceptable sense of self because there's some calm around. And we take birth in that. It's like, ah, oh, that's it, I'm getting there. But as we do that, a looping, as soon as there's the slightest looping thought, we're back in, now I'm a failure. It's an interesting thing to to really look at that the view that can underline how we are in our in our practice. I was telling uh, Paul and Kirsten earlier today. Uh, there's a, something uh, just happened on the retreat, and I noticed that I was imagining uh, having a meeting with somebody and and feeling a bit out of my depth in this meeting and how it wasn't going to work very well, and then feeling a bit miserable around that, and then. And then suddenly, just this moment of thinking, the whole thing was just completely imagined. <laughs> you know, this meeting in which I was feeling a bit sort of miserable and unprepared was just complete. Hadn't happened at all. But then I, you know, it was just like, oh, isn't that isn't that interesting? But I just, I don't really feel so much now. Like, oh, if only that didn't happen, because that's a tensing around, it, isn't it? It doesn't matter. These things come and go. It's just. It's just a pattern of the mind. It's that shift out of self-view. From that means there's something inadequate about me to, ah, oh, this is what our minds do. Okay, we can see through it. We can see through it and let it be. So the, uh, the third of these truths is the, the truth of the cessation of suffering, which is uh, the Pali word is Nibbāna, which you may know, or you may be even more familiar with the Sanskrit form nirvana. And uh, this is an interesting word, isn't it? Talk about a word that at times can become an object of craving. Oh, well, that's around. And uh, just to offer a a couple of of reflections on how we may begin to sense this third uh, noble truth. Um, I feel it's helpful to to sort of pursue a middle way between two different paths with it. So it may feel that sometimes if you hear a word like that, that it just becomes up there as this impossible ideal. You know, if I lived in 9th century Tibet and I spent 25 years in a cave... I might just, by the end of it, have some sense of nibbana or nirvana. But what's that got to do with me and my aching knees? And so sometimes there can be that tendency. It's like just this thing that's just so out of this world that it's really, in a way, becomes rather irrelevant to us. Yeah? At other times, then, there might be almost the opposite tendency to think, ah, oh, well, no, maybe that moment when you know, I was feeling stressed and then I felt a little bit more at ease, Everything felt okay. Oh, that must be Nibbana. That's what they're talking about. Yeah. So, in other words, I, I, I rather like this creative uh, play, almost, between on the, on the one hand not making this so exalted it's nothing to do with us, and yet on the other hand not reducing it to 
sim- simply feeling a little more stressed. So it's an interesting sense of how we how we relate to this sense. Um, I'm at the moment rather influenced by a, a teacher called Barry Majid, who's a, a Zen teacher who speaks about our secret practice. I find this a lovely idea that we might pin to certainly notions like Nibbana or enlightenment, that they could become a, uh, what's the phrase he used, a bit like flypaper that catch all our secret fantasies and desires. In other words, it can become a a great place of uh, rather unconscious motivations for practice. You know, I want a life where everything's smooth and I don't feel any physical pain and I just float through life and everything's just so at ease and everybody loves me and ah. Oh. And so, of course, we, I want that. I don't know about you. Of course, we, we might have this, this desire for that. But interesting, again, just as an ongoing reflection to think what is... Uh, What's an aspiration that really leads us forward? Uh, and what at times can be a more, uh, you know, perhaps a sort of unhelpful fantasy of perfection or eternal smoothness or whatever it might be. Anyway, it's an ongoing reflection I, I uh, invite you to explore. One way into this notion of Nibbana is the ordinary moments where things cool down and these are really worth noticing the ordinary moments where things cool down for me I think this gives us a clue as to what this is around yeah so you know that those moments when we might be rather caught up in stories about our own success or getting it all together or you know all these projects and then it all feels rather complicated and then we're just walking down the street and we're touched by something beautiful. And it just takes us out of that whole complex construction. Yeah. Uh, some, my, I, my examples of these, I, I always seem to come back to being in the park because I've always lived in cities. Uh, so... Uh, actually, you know, those of us who live in cities, I think parks can be really, really uh, such a lovely resource. But it's like, uh, you know, no- noticing the trees, the birds, just that moment. And you just, ah. And there's a, a rather basic sense of joy that's not to do with me being successful or having a written a book or got it all together or, you know. <sighs> but all of that's just ceased. Or at least if it, you know, cooled down. One word for Nibbana is cooling. There's a coolness. And that coolness may be very, very profound, or it may be more subtle, but just noticing those. Because those moments are what opens up a path. They're very important in challenging our beliefs and assumptions about what's going to make us feel okay. You know, so my project of I'm going to make myself feel okay by getting all these plates spinning or being this great person. Ah, actually, maybe there's a source of joy and well-being that's something completely different from that. 
that's actually around letting go, of putting down, of relinquishing. And all kinds of things are a doorway into those moments. Um, Another moment, I really remember this, is walking, uh, being rather preoccupied. I can't even remember what I was preoccupied around, but walking down my street in in Nottingham, in my own little world (laughs) of Dukkha. And uh, seeing a, a woman there coming out of a laundrette with a couple of really heavy bags. And I just noticed her and just uh, felt moved to say, oh, are you okay? Do you want some, do you want some help? And uh, this is not the most dramatic of stories, by the way. <laughs> and uh, it, she said, no, I'm fine. <laughs> I told you it wasn't a dramatic. It's not going to make a Hollywood story. Man asks a woman if she wants some help and she says, no, I'm fine. But uh, here's the drama, and this, this was really fascinating, is I just noticed, and I said, oh, okay, it's fine, I walked on. But just what had happened to my heart in that moment of generosity, it was a moment of coolness where the dukkha really lessened. And so, it, it, interesting, not to, again, not to, also, but just notice those moments when it, ha, ah, it cools. It's a real clue, a real clue. And as I said then, those open up a, a path. And the path that uh, opens up has been described in, uh, in many ways. Uh, the, the eightfold path, and sometimes some are called the three trainings, ethics, meditation, wisdom. And so just to speak very briefly around this, obviously uh, this could be at least eight talks. (laughs) But the path is one, it begins with with clear seeing, uh, with wise understanding. So in other words, when we're seeing more in this way I've been describing, this rather naturally leads to certain intentions to be more loving, to be more compassionate uh, and to let go, intentions of renunciation. Again, as Kirsten was saying, these aren't abstract duties and demands. I should be more loving. I should be more compassionate. I really ought to let go. It's not like that at all. In those moments of seeing, it's just, ah, that's what makes sense. You know, it wasn't that, mo- that moment as a, yeah, would you like some help? And then, ah, it wasn't, oh, I really ought to be more generous. <laughs> it's like a, a path opens up that that's, that's what's liberating. Yeah. So we see that more and more, and, and we remember and we forget. We remember and we forget. You know, I'm not saying that this moment of, with the laundry, great epiphany and then ever since I've been in this wonderful generous mode no <laughs> it's it's like this isn't it you know you look at the stars on New Year's Eve and you see the fire burning and you look at the, sky, the vastness of the universe and you say all oh, the joys and sorrows of life and you feel ah oh, at peace with it and then you go home and there's a letter from the broadband company saying they're putting up the thing and you're like, how dare they? <laughs> At least that's me. <laughs> you know, 
And so there's both of those. And so this is why it's a practice. You know, it's a practice. And so those, those intentions then flow out into our speech, into our actions, and into how we earn our living. How can we express those? How do we speak from our deepest truths? How do we act in line with our deepest understandings? And a real ongoing challenge for so many. How do we express that in our lives of work? And then two in the more meditative aspects of the path, the effort, the mindfulness, the concentration. To be the intention to cultivate what is wholesome. You know, so that even just bringing it back to mind now, you see that moment of seeing. It's like, ah, intention, uh, cultivate generosity, cultivate clear seeing. Mm. And these things then form um, a rather delightful uh, feedback loop. This is how I see the Eightfold Path. As you may know, it's a wheel, represented as a wheel. It's not like this, but actually all of these things support each other. So as we more and more cultivate this path, embody these things in how we speak, act and live, this too feeds in to our wise understanding. And so these things mutually support uh, our practice. So let's uh, sit uh, quietly together just for a couple of minutes.